Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Let us pray. Holy Spirit, God and Lord, come to us this joyful day with your sevenfold gift of grace. Rekindle in our hearts the holy fire of your love, that in a true and living faith we may tell abroad the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Father, one God, now and forever. Amen. Our text for our sermon is John chapter 16, verses 5 through 11. But now I'm going away to him who sent me, and not one of you asks me, where are you going? Yet because I've told you these things, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I am telling you the truth. It is good for you that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will convict the world about sin, about righteousness, and about judgment. About sin, because they do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I am going to the Father and will no longer see you. About judgment, because the ruler of this world has been condemned. This is the Gospel of our Lord. It is Pentecost Sunday. Now, the Sunday in which Jesus rose would have been the celebration of the Feast of First Fruits. Fifty days later, hence we get the term Pentecost, which is 50, the Holy Spirit, as promised by Jesus, came upon the apostles there in Jerusalem, and a mighty wind was heard, and they had the flaming tongues over their head, and the people in Jerusalem heard them preaching in their own native languages. Remember, there's been quite a lot of festivity that took place 50 days earlier, having been that Feast of first fruits, And, of course, we know that a few days before that was the Feast of the Passover Lamb. So, today we celebrate when all those people hear the message and came to believe the single largest mass conversion in a day to Christianity, and we call that the birth of the New Testament church that happened by that Holy Spirit coming. In our text for today, Jesus promises that Holy Spirit. This takes place after Judas has left the room and Jesus has celebrated the Lord's Supper and everything, but before he goes to Gethsemane. In fact, if you listen to last week's sermon, these words are stated right before he begins the prayer of last week's sermon. So let's get into the promise of the Holy Spirit, which begins there at verse 5 and continues through verse 7. But now I'm going away to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? Yet because I've told you these things, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I am telling you the truth. It is good for you that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Counselor will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. The word that Jesus uses for Counselor here in the original Greek language is parakletos. That literally means one called to your side to help you. Now, in today's text, he's going to explain how the Holy Spirit will be called to these men's side to help them. We're told when he comes, he will convict the world of sin, about righteousness, and about judgment. And that Greek word that we translate as convict, in its context, can mean one of two things, depending on who it's talking about. To convince would be those who become believers, they become convinced of this. But if we're talking about unbelievers, then it will stand against them, and it will convict them of their unbelief. And so between the word for the Holy Spirit and that word for convict and combining the three things Jesus says, we arrive at our sermon theme. The Holy Spirit stands at your side and helps you by convincing and convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. 
So, verse 9 says, about sin, because they do not believe in me. Now, the Greek word that Jesus uses for sin is the most generic Greek word for sin. And Jesus immediately clarifies what he's talking about with sin because he says, because they do not believe in me. There's only one sin that condemns anybody to hell, and that's the sin of unbelief. So what Jesus here is talking about is the base, the very thing that is the result of all other sins. It is the fact that we are born in darkness. If you were born into a dark room and you never saw any light, and all you know is every day at a certain time a meal appeared before you and that's it, you would never know freedom. You would never know what it was like to leave the room. You maybe wouldn't understand why you have aches and pains because you weren't able to move around a lot. The world needs to be convicted that it does not believe in a gracious God who has saved them. The world needs to be convicted that we cannot save ourselves. The world needs to be convicted that it actually hates God in and of itself. We call this original sin. We call it the sinful nature or the old Adam. So Jesus says it to Nicodemus three years earlier, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. So the Holy Spirit has to come and he uses the law to show us we're condemned. We do not have the kind of belief in God that we should. And this is where some Christians put the cart before the horse because they think, I have to accept God. I have to make my decision for God. I have to do the right things and then God will notice me. The Holy Spirit has to convince us that we cannot even come to faith in and of ourselves. He has to create that. And he does that through the message. We've got to have something to believe in. And the message is that God became a man, lived perfectly for you, died for you, rose victorious over sin, death, and the devil, so that whoever believes in him does not perish, but has everlasting life. So the Holy Spirit stands at your side and helps you by convincing you that you need to believe in the Savior. You need a Savior and that you have a Savior. So you can hear the message that there is a Savior, but if you don't believe it, then you're in trouble. Now, for the rest of the world, I remember hearing Christians in my life say, I just can't believe that a loving God would send somebody to hell. Never mind the fact that the Bible spells out hell pretty clearly. The answer to that is, a loving God died for the sins of the world. There's only one thing that damns a person to hell, and that's that they did not believe that Jesus is the Christ who has done all the work for their salvation. So the Holy Spirit stands at your side and helps you. You're privileged to proclaim to people the law, showing them that they need to be saved, and then you're privileged to proclaim to them the good news that they have a Savior, but you cannot argue them into belief. That's the Holy Spirit's job. He has to enter their heart and give birth to the new person. He has convinced you by doing that. And so we see here that the Holy Spirit stands at your side and helps you by convincing and convicting the world of sin. Now there's something that goes with that sin, and we can get confused as to what sin is, and then what happens that we become saved. So in verse 10, Jesus adds further elaboration about righteousness, because I'm going to the Father and you will no longer see me. Righteousness. Adam and Eve had God's righteousness when he created them, for they were created in his image. When they believed the devil's lie, they lost holiness. 
they lost God's righteousness. Therefore, the only thing that will save you is God's righteousness. God became a man, lived perfectly in your place, stood up to every temptation, both the big ones and the small ones, the ones that you could not stand up to and the ones that you personally, because they're not sins that you struggle with, would. But Jesus did this perfectly. Then he died on the cross so that he could remove your unrighteousness, your sin. And when the Holy Spirit convinces you that you're unrighteous and that Christ is your righteousness, then he has united you to Christ and you wear Christ's righteousness like wearing a white robe. However, the world needs to be convinced of this. And again, you're privileged to share this message, but you can't argue somebody into believing it. To explain what I mean, let me tell you what the world thinks of as righteousness. Look at every religion and sadly even many confused Christian churches and ask, what do you have to do to be saved? The natural religion of man is that you do something good and then God does something good for you. So some of the ways that we see this is people thinking good works. Now to pick on a few that are historically very prevalent. In every nation, in every time, there's always the idea that if a person dies in battle to the glory of their country, then whatever religion or whatever god they worship is automatically obligated to give them eternal life. That is work righteousness. But man is not righteous. Adam and Eve lost it. Another one that we see throughout history, I'm going to tell you, Probably in ways I haven't even realized, but in many ways I've seen, I have benefited when somebody who is wealthy donates a portion of their wealth to, for example, donate life-saving equipment to hospitals or to build hospital wings or hospitals or, for example, to donate money for research for vaccines for dangerous diseases. So I'm not saying that in any of these cases the person hasn't been a benefit to their fellow man. But if they think that that earns their salvation before God, they already show that they have the wrong motives because God just expects us to do this stuff. That would be holiness. So our righteousness cannot earn our salvation because we are not righteous in and of ourselves. I mentioned look at any world religion, any of them, or any even cult, small religion. Even those that really don't have a scheme of heaven, the way the monotheistic religions or those based on heaven do, you will find, for example, a person has to connect their Brahman with their Atman to reach nirvana. And the way they do that ultimately is by being a good person. That is human beings' righteousness. Now, if we're doing things because it makes us feel good, we have a selfish motivation. If we're doing things because we want to benefit our fellow man, that might be nice before our fellow man, but in the long run, we have a sinful nature attached to it. It does not obligate God to save us. For we all have, going back to the first part of the sermon, that original sin, we are not righteous before God's eyes. Only Christ's righteousness will save us. So, we are privileged to proclaim the law, which shows us holiness and righteousness. That's the Ten Commandments. But because if we think of it, if in thought, word, and deed we violate the law, then the Holy Spirit has to convince us that not only do we need righteousness, but we are not righteous of ourselves. We need somebody else's righteousness. And so in your case, believing in Jesus, he has convinced you that Jesus is your righteousness. Now, one of the greatest ways we see people needing to be convicted of righteousness are what we call the modern-day Pharisee. The holier-than-thou, and sadly, 
We've all met Christians that are that way. I don't struggle with the sin you struggle with, and so I'm going to look down my nose at you. Now, this is different than pointing out a sin to show they need Christ's righteousness. This is looking down your nose at somebody for their sin as if you're better than them. The Holy Spirit will convict them, because as long as a person is doing that, they do not understand that even they cannot save themselves. In the long run, on Judgment Day, those who, whether they didn't care... They didn't care about righteousness, they were too in love with the ways of the world, or whether they focused too much on their own righteousness. The idea that they earned their salvation, that God was obligated to save them in some way. The Holy Spirit will be the one who convicts them, who says, uh-uh, I made sure that you heard the word that Christ is your righteousness, and you chose to focus on yourself, and you weren't righteous. So when we talk to people and have the privilege of sharing God's word and living God's word, we often don't even realize that when we don't live as Pharisees, but we live out our belief that the Holy Spirit is even using our actions to convince the world that Christ, not ourselves, Christ is our righteousness. And again, when we're trying to convince people that they're not righteous, people don't like hearing that. I'm basically a good person. Don't tell me that I'm rotten and unrighteous. The Holy Spirit has to do that work, and we're thankful. We just present the message, but we always present the message that Christ is our righteousness. So the Holy Spirit stands at your side and helps you by convincing and convicting the world of sin and by convincing and convicting the world of righteousness. The third part of this triad that Jesus mentions is in verse 11 and about judgment because the ruler of this world has been condemned. Jesus here is referring to Satan. Now, when I was a child, I used to have this idea that when Christ returned on the last day, there was going to be this great battle between Christ and the devil, and that there actually was a shot the devil could get in a sucker punch and maybe win. That was a complete misunderstanding. You see, the devil was defeated on the cross. Isn't it funny because he's the one who worked to get Jesus crucified thinking he was getting the Savior out of the way and yet basically he was, to use a modern English idiom, cutting his own throat. But this is important for us to understand. The devil has been defeated. He's lost the war. The war is over. But the thing that we don't understand and the Holy Spirit has to convict us of this is in our natural condition, we're going back to the original sin I mentioned earlier, we are slaves to the devil. You are in this world either a slave to the devil or a child of God. And the Holy Spirit has to convince us of this because one of the great lies that the devil has used in our modern age, he's used other lies in the past, but in our modern age he wants us to believe in the great principle of freedom of the will. Now, certainly you're free to choose your breakfast cereal or your socks that you wear. That's not what I'm talking about. When it comes to eternal life, you are either a slave to the devil, and hence condemned, going to hell, or you are a child of God, and there is no in-between. The Holy Spirit must convince you. Like I said, if you were born in a dark room and that's all you ever knew, in other words, if you were born into slavery and you never saw freedom, you wouldn't know what you were missing out on. You wouldn't know how miserable you were, and so you would reach for the things that you did know. The Holy Spirit has to send somebody to us with the word to show us there's true freedom. Now, Christ on the cross is the sledgehammer through which he busted the shackles of your slavery. True freedom 
is living in forgiveness. You'll have a sinful nature until Christ returns. So here's how the devil tries to get you back into slavery once the Holy Spirit has convinced you that Jesus Christ is your salvation, your righteousness. Because once he's convinced you of that, you, you obviously you have faith and you are a child of God. The devil either tries to get you to be indifferent to the word of God. Sadly, as a pastor, I deal with this. Those are the people who you see come to church, and it's not that just going to church saves you, don't get me wrong, but the only time that they're going to be in the Word is when they come to church, and the only time they come to church is when they have absolutely nothing else to do. So you bump into them, you stop by their house and say, really, I'm, I'm concerned because you are indifferent to the Word of God is what it seems. And they turn around and they say, oh, well, yeah, you're right, I, I need to go. And say, okay, good, I hopefully will see you gather together for Bible study or for worship or whatever. Oh, I've got plans this week. Okay, great. Well, you know, I kind of got to interrupt your cycle of staying away from the Word maybe the next week. Oh, no, 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 i got plans the next week. When Christians start completely staying away from the Word, and one of the ways they do that is staying away from worship, they have become indifferent to the Word of God. Now, Jesus gives that warning into one of the seven churches in the book of Revelations. He says, since you are neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth and into the flames. You cannot stand neutral and indifferent. Then you are, in fact, a slave to the devil. So the devil wins us back by just lulling us to sleep. We don't need to be in the Word and nourish our faith. Another way that he does that is actually through sin. Every one of us has our sins that we struggle with, and daily we fall into those sins. I'm not talking about struggling with the sin. I'm talking about a sin you know is wrong, and you embrace it. This means you live in it. You know it's against God's word, and you don't care. You, and, and I've seen Christians do this. How dare God say that of me? The saddest thing is when God sends a brother or sister in Christ to tell that person, you have given this sin the place in your heart that belongs to the Holy Spirit, and you are driving the Holy Spirit out of your heart, and they turn around and they say, how dare you? How dare you tell me what I'm doing is wrong? And I hate you, and I hate your church for condemning my sin, not condemning my sin in a pharisaical way, but out of concern for me. And the really sad thing is, is today there are plenty of confused Christian churches that will accept them in at least a seemingly worldly loving manner because they want their offerings or whatever else. See, once the devil gets us to embrace a sin, we'll squeeze the Holy Spirit right out of our heart when we're putting that sin in place of the Holy Spirit. So we've got to understand that you're either a child of God or a slave to the devil. There's no in-between. And if we're going to embrace those sins or if we're going to become indifferent to being a child of God, then we're attaching our chains again to a loser, to somebody who's going to spend eternity in hell. And because we're attached to him, that's where we're going to go. It's no fun telling Christians when they've become indifferent to God's word or when they're embracing a sin. And that's why it's so comforting for us that the Holy Spirit comes and does the work of convincing. We simply show them their Savior and we show them the sin in which they are forsaking their Savior and warn them. The Holy Spirit makes that stick. So he convinces and convicts the world of judgment. And ultimately, if they reject it, this is the only thing that condemns a person to hell. They chose to remain a child of the devil, whether they realized it or not. So, 
We see that the Holy Spirit stands at your side and He helps you. You're privileged to proclaim the Word. He's helped you by convincing you of your sin, of Christ is your righteousness, and that you are judged now a child of God because of Christ, not because of your own righteousness. But then He privileges you with getting to live that and getting to proclaim that. And so when it comes to others, we don't have to argue them into faith. We are messengers. We live it and we present the Word, and the Holy Spirit stands at your side and helps you by convincing and convicting the world of sin by convincing and convicting the world of righteousness and by convincing and convicting the world of judgment. Now, as I said at the beginning of the sermon, this is Pentecost Sunday. There was an extra gift of the Holy Spirit. These disciples were already believers. Jesus pointed that out in his prayer that we studied last week in John chapter 17. He gave them extra gifts. And he works in ways very subtly you and I can miss but he gives you those gifts as you live and are privileged to share the word of God, convincing the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and that they have a Savior. Amen. Now may the God of hope fill you with complete joy and peace as you continue to believe so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Praise to you, Holy Spirit. We worship and glorify you as the Lord and the giver of life. As you were present at the beginning of the world to shed life on all created things, as you gave a new life of understanding to the disciples in your Pentecost baptism of fire, so by the baptism of water with the word, you have made the light of faith shine in our hearts to know Jesus as our Lord. In thanksgiving for your gifts to us, we confess, I believe that I cannot by my own thinking or choosing believe in Jesus Christ my Lord or come to him. But the Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel, enlightened me with his gifts, sanctified and kept me in the true faith. In the same way he calls, gathers, enlightens, and sanctifies the whole Christian church on earth and keeps it with Jesus Christ in the one true faith. Holy Spirit, all-seeing counselor and fountain of all spiritual gifts, Stand by us in the weakness of our sinful flesh. Grant us a right understanding of the truths that Jesus taught. Give us strength to endure with patience whatever afflictions God may send into our lives. Help us, intercede for us, train us, that we may pray to the Father with boldness and confidence. Preserve us by the power of your word in our most holy faith as members of the church, the body of Jesus, where there is forgiveness for all. In this Christian church, he daily and fully forgives all sins to me and all believers. Holy Spirit, highest comfort in every need, in these gray and last days of the world, strengthen our feeble hands, steady our weak knees, encourage our fearful hearts, remind us of your word and promises. Be strong, do not fear, your Lord will come again. He will come to save you. And in your final mighty creative act, O Holy Spirit, raise up our bodies so that we, together with all the saints, may lift up our heads and with glorified eyes see our Savior drawing near. On the last day he will raise me and all the dead and give eternal life to me and all believers in Christ. This is most certainly true. Healing Lord, we ask that you comfort those who are sick and heal those who are suffering illness and disease. We thank you for the healing you gave to our member who had a minor accident and also for the healing you have given to those who were sick. 
God of all creation, you are in control even when pandemics like this COVID virus are infecting our people. As the United States continues to open up, Lord, we pray that you protect people and that you actually let the summertime weather function as it does with the cold or with the flu, that it would put this virus into remission. Lord, we ask that you be with those who have lost jobs and as the economy opens up and our society opens up, that they see a return of employment and that they see your providing loving hand. Especially as the Wyoming economy and fossil fuels have been hit so hard recently, we pray for those who have lost their jobs in that employment and ask that you help them find gainful employment or bless them as they move with their jobs to other areas in the oil field. Hear us, Lord, as we bring you our private petitions. As you filled the disciples' hearts and allowed them to proclaim the gospel boldly, so we ask you to fill our hearts with joy and comfort, O Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord look upon you with favor and give you peace. Amen.